We're back in our series on Mark's gospel this evening, and Mark's narrative so far has circled around the revelation of and responses to Jesus's astonishing power. Across, Jesus, across church history, uh, the four Gospels have been linked to the four living creatures in Ezekiel chapter 1. John is the eagle soaring to the highest heavens from his very first sentence. Luke is the ox lowing with Christ's humility and focused on his priestly sacrifice. Matthew is the man concerned with the humanity and ancestry of Christ. But Mark? Mark is the lion of the Gospels. And as we've been working our way through Mark's depiction of Jesus' power, I think it's been easy to see why. Jesus' power has been as fearsome as it has been commanding, transfixing crowds, pacifying oceans, and terrifying anyone who doesn't trust him. Mark is known as the Lion of the Gospels because the Jesus of Mark rules wherever he walks, and commands whenever he speaks. And in today's passage, we're going to see what happens when the lion of Mark's gospel heads back home. Because point one, and we shouldn't skip over this point, Jesus has a hometown. To be honest, I sometimes actually kind of struggle to visit the places where I grew up because of all the memories and emotions that flood my mind when I do. It never ceases to amaze me how evocative particular places can be, especially when those places are places that watched me growing up. And in Mark 6 verse 1, Jesus is returning to that sort of place with those sort of memories. He's returning to Nazareth, his hometown, which means he's returning to the place that watched him as he was growing up. He's running his fingers through the bushes that used to be his hiding places. He's walking through the streets where he learned how to run. He's sitting in the same synagogue where he sang psalms every Sabbath day to breathe in the same smells of parchment and incense and polished wood. The Jesus of Mark's gospel is a lion, but in Mark 6, he's returning to the place that knew him when he could barely squeak. And they remember him. They're still eating their meals around the tables that he had made for them and telling stories about the little boy who called God his father. Must have been a strange experience, mustn't it? It must have been strange for Jesus to return to the place that served as the backdrop for all of his most precious memories and all of his most formative experiences. This was the place where Jesus learned how to be human, how to be a son and a brother and a neighbor and a friend. When Jesus thought about home, this is the place that he would have been thinking about. And it must have been strange for Nazareth, I think, too. This Jesus was the boy that they used to lift up and carry on their hips. And now he was coming back to them with new friends, new enemies, and a colossal new reputation. The Jesus of Mark's gospel is a lion from the moment that we meet him. But Nazareth remembers him when he wasn't. They remember him 
from before he was casting out demons. They remember him from before he was silencing storms. They remember him before he could read, before he could speak, and before he knew how to kneel when he prayed. Jesus remembers Nazareth, and Nazareth remembers Jesus because point one, Jesus has a hometown, but point two, that is not where his wisdom and his power come from. Nazareth knew him when he was little and watched him grow tall. But now he is standing so much taller than they ever taught him. They knew him before he could walk and they watched him grow strong. But now his hands hold powers that they never gave him. They knew him when he was still sucking his thumb and they watched him grow in wisdom and insight. But this wisdom, this wisdom is new, and it did not come from them. Which means the entire town is abuzz with one question. Look down at verse 2. Verse 2, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? They've been told about everything he's been doing, And they've listened to everything he's been saying. And they are amazed because what they're hearing is so very much bigger than the young man that they so fondly remember. They are amazed by him because Jesus may have grown up in Nazareth, but Nazareth cannot explain him. The man they see standing in front of them has far outgrown the child that they thought they had raised. We experience amazement when we see something without being able to explain it, particularly when we see an effect without being able to explain its cause. So there are all sorts of different things that amaze me. I'm amazed by the internet. I'm amazed by how many different breeds of dog there are. Uh, Recently, I've been amazed that Lotus Biscoff has blown up from being the free biscuit you get with your coffee to being this summer's limited edition McFlurry flavor. And I am amazed that the number of transistors that we can fit on a microchip is somehow still doubling every two years. Those things are amazing to me because amazement is the experience of seeing something that's happening without being able to explain it. And that's what Nazareth is experiencing with Jesus. Verse 3, look down. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? They've seen everything he's doing. They've heard everything he's saying. And they cannot explain him. They could take you to his family home and bring out seven different people who had the same eyes as him. They could take you on a tour of the town to show you how his carpentry had developed and improved. They raised this boy Jesus into Jesus the man, but here he is speaking with a prophetic wisdom that goes beyond human wisdom and acting with a heavenly power that they cannot explain. They cannot explain his wisdom and they cannot explain his power, but what they do know is that he did not get those things from Nazareth. What they're beginning to realize is that the child they raised into a man 
cannot be explained in merely human terms. Later in verse 4, Jesus describes himself as a prophet, and never has someone been more worthy of that title. Someone empowered by God to speak and act beyond human wisdom and power. Nazareth may have raised him and formed him and shaped him, but it isn't big enough to explain him. No, if you want to explain Jesus, you'll need a heavenly explanation that goes far beyond the town in which he grew up. And what's true of Jesus is true of Jesus' church too. Jesus has a hometown, and so do each of the members of his church scattered right across this world in places that are precious to us, places that formed us and shaped us as they raised us, places where we first learned how to be brothers and sisters and neighbours and friends. But if you want to understand Jesus' church, you will need an explanation that goes far beyond Nazareth or Newcastle or Nairobi. Because the wisdom that has been given to Jesus' church is greater than any human wisdom. And the power given to Jesus' church is greater than any human power. We have been entrusted with a prophetic wisdom that this world simply cannot understand. And a heavenly power that this world is simply unable to explain. Power to resist evil and restore peace to a world at war with its maker. And wisdom to prophetically discern what is good and holy and true amidst corruption and bitterness and lies. Don't get me wrong. Being children of heaven doesn't stop us from being children of this earth. And being a child of my heavenly father does not stop me from being a proud Welsh son of a proud Welsh mother. It is right and good for us to love where we are from, to learn from the people who raised us, and to strive to live peaceably with our neighbours. We actually get a sense of that in verse 1. Did you notice when Jesus returned to Nazareth, he returned to teach in the very same synagogue that he would have been taught at every Sabbath day as a child. Because the almighty grace of God doesn't obliterate our human nature or what natural power and wisdom he has given to the people of this world. The grace of God doesn't destroy our human nature, but it does perfect it and elevate it, filling our earthly minds with the things of heaven. Jesus returns to his childhood synagogue, but the things he taught there weren't things that he ever learned there. He taught with a prophetic wisdom that came from above. And as Christians, we take after the Jesus that we follow. As Christians, our faith is in heaven, our hope is in heaven, and our treasure is in heaven. As it said in Colossians 3 verse 1 that Charlie read earlier, our hearts are set on things above. Our minds are set not on earthy things, but on things of heaven. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. And that is the reason why for 2,000 years, the church has simply been inexplicable to this world. Because the power and wisdom and growth of Christ's church has not come from this world, but from above it. 
and the day that the church stops being inexplicable to this world, the day that our wisdom becomes an entirely earthly sort of wisdom, and our power becomes an entirely worldly sort of power, well, that will be the day on which we have lost our connection with heaven and with the Lord Jesus Christ who came down from there. Jesus has a hometown, but Nazareth can't explain him because that is not where his wisdom and power come from. They are amazed by him. They do not understand where he got such astonishing wisdom or who gave him such lion-like power. But what begins as amazement quickly dawns into something darker. Point one, Jesus has a hometown. But point two, that is not where his wisdom and power are from, which point three is offensive to his neighbors because neighbors hate prophets. Nazareth can't explain Jesus. His prophetic wisdom and heavenly power are inexplicable to them, and they are offended by that. Because when your mind is filled with the things of heaven, you will always end up offending people whose minds are filled with the things of this world. Especially when you share almost everything else in common with those people. As Jesus put it in verse 4, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. When you share a town or a family or a home with a group of people, you end up sharing so much more with them. You'll share memories and experiences. You'll share traditions and delicacies. You'll share the same rules and customs and expectations and laws. And those things are certainly important. Each one of those things plays its part in helping human beings live together in peace and in harmony, which is a precious thing. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. But when you share the same memories and experiences and traditions and expectations, when you share all of those things with your neighbors, and yet your ultimate aspirations are completely different from theirs, you will inevitably become offensive to the very people with whom you have so much else in common. Because while they are working to establish the kingdom of man, you will be praying for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is true wisdom in the natural wisdom that God has given to the people of this world. And the earthly things that this world values and works for and loves are almost always good things in some measure. Family, education, healthcare, beauty, culture, sex, and wealth. These are all good gifts of a good God. And the wisdom of this world is right when it says they are good things. But the wisdom of heaven says those things are excellent servants and terrible masters. And the power of heaven is the power to put everything in its right place, which means firmly and determinedly refusing to live like those things are of ultimate value and worth. 
the wisdom of earth will fill your mind with the things of this world, the things of the flesh. But the wisdom of heaven says, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The power of earth spends itself working for things that perish and spoil and rust and fade. But the power of heaven is the power to put everything in its right place and the right place for family, education, healthcare, beauty, culture, sex, and wealth is in the service of the God who made them. Which means the power of heaven is the power to lay every single one of those things down at God's feet. So is it any surprise that Jesus was offensive to his neighbors? His heavenly power was the greatest power to ever walk the face of this world. All he had to do was say the word and demons would flee, storms would be silenced, and the dead would be brought back to life. And he put his heavenly power entirely in the service of the kingdom of God and of the things of heaven. And if there is one thing that is even more offensive to this world than not having health or sex or money or the things of this world, well, it's having enough power to grasp hold of and cling to all of those things and yet refusing to do so. Jesus didn't use his power to pursue health or a family. He didn't use it for sex or financial security. He used his power to resist sin, to overthrow evil, to bring people to repentance and to establish the kingdom of God in this world, a kingdom where it is better to lose your life for the sake of the gospel than to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul. Because Jesus' power was the power to put everything in its right place, and the right place for the things of this world is in the service of the kingdom of heaven. His mind was filled with the things of heaven, which was inexplicable and offensive to his neighbors, whose minds were filled with the things of this earth. And do you know the sad irony of that? The sad irony is that their offense at Jesus' prophetic wisdom and heavenly power meant that Jesus couldn't even really help them with their earthly needs. Verse 5, look down, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people who were ill and heal them. Why? Verse 6, because of their amazing lack of faith. Last week, Jesus told the bleeding woman that her faith had healed or saved her. She trusted in his peace-bringing power, and so she was sent out in that freedom and in that peace. But if you don't trust Jesus, if you don't have faith in his power to put everything in its right place, and you don't think it is good that the kingdom of God has come near, then even when you see all the wonderful things he has done on this earth, you will never ask Jesus for his help Because the only peace that Jesus has to give is the peace in which everything is in its proper place and the peace in which earth's empty hands are filled with the treasures of heaven. And if you don't want that sort of peace, well, his power will only ever be offensive to you. 
Is it any surprise that Jesus was offensive to his neighbors? And is it any surprise that we are offensive to ours? Our entire secular culture is built on the idea that spiritual, religious, heavenly-minded things should be kept private and separate and subdued. Our culture is determined that the wisdom and power of heaven should never intrude on the government of earth. Our entire secular culture is designed to suppress the things of heaven beneath the things of this world, to separate the laws of man from the law of God, and to liberate the lusts of the flesh from the controlling power of the spirit, which reverses the created order and is precisely what Jesus came to save us from. Jesus came to declare that the kingdom of heaven has come near and to bring people to faith and to repentance. But that prophetic message will always be inexplicable and offensive to people whose minds are filled with health and family and education and sex and money and the things of this world. And if you don't fill your mind with those earthly things, if you don't orient your whole life around them, then your life will always be inexplicable and offensive to people who do. When you put your faith in Jesus' message that the kingdom of God has come near, and when you repent of your earthly way of living, well, your life itself will become an offense. It is good and right for us to seek to live peaceably with our neighbors. But do you notice in this passage, loving our neighbors is not the same as never offending them. And if we really love our neighbors, if we love them like Jesus loved his neighbors, well, our lives will necessarily be offensive to them. Because the heavenly peace that we will be striving for is the very peace that this world has made war with. The prophetic wisdom that we will be offering is the call to repentance and faith. And the divine power in which we will be living is the power to sacrifice the very things that this world worships. Is there any surprise that Jesus was offensive to his neighbors? And is there any surprise that we will be offensive to ours? It is good and right for us to love our neighbors and to strive to live peaceably with them. But friends, we should never try to be kinder or more loving or more peaceable than the Jesus who was an offense to his own hometown. And that is a painful calling. It is a painful calling to be a prophet in a world that hates prophets. But for the love of God and the love of our neighbors, that is precisely what we are called to follow Jesus in being. So as we close, And uh, perhaps slightly boldly, on a warm summer's evening, I want a true-to-form quote from St. Augustine. It's a meaty quote and a long quote, but I'll end with this. Here's what Augustine said, feeling the full weight of Jesus's prophetic calling to bring peace and offense. He said, even if the people of this world do not know it, 
Even if they are accommodating, even if they share on the best of terms the same meals and households and cities without any obvious antagonism and enjoy frequent, friendly contact with us. Nevertheless, by their aspirations, they are opposed to those people who are turning toward God and are our enemies. For when one group loves and longs for this world and the other wishes to be freed from this world, who cannot see that the former is the enemy of the latter? And yet, it is such a special gift to live in the midst of their daily conversation, even while at the same time we don't deviate from the way of God's commandments. For so very often... As our minds strive to press ahead towards God, we are roughly handled on the road and we lose our nerve. That's why we often fail to fulfill all our good intentions for fear of offending those with whom we live, who love and pursue other things which are good but not heavenly. Every sane person is separated from them, not geographically, but in the mind because bodies are contained in particular places. But the mind's place is what it loves. Point one, Jesus has a hometown. But point two, that's not where his wisdom and power come from. Which point three is offensive to his neighbours because hometowns hate their prophets. So let's pray that our minds would be so filled with the wisdom and power and peace of heaven that, like Jesus, we would be at peace with being an offence as the band comes up. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you call us to be prophets in a world that hates prophets and to offer your peace to a world that is at war with you. So we pray for the sake of our neighbours and for the sake of your glory that you would fill our minds with the things of heaven so that in season and out of season we would never stop proclaiming that in Christ your kingdom has come near. And we pray that with confidence. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.